the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Luke. Luke is written so that we might know we have a reliable faith. The events written about in the book were eyewitness accounts that Luke researched and wrote down for all to see. We have seen that Jesus, the Savior of the world, was born to a poor carpenter family in the city of Nazareth. He grew up and lived a normal life, doing woodwork till the age of 30 when he started his public ministry, calling all people to repent of their sins and turn to God. Jesus performed many miracles, healing the sick, the blind, the paralyzed, even casting out demons that had gone into people. The scribes and Pharisees were outraged when Jesus claimed to be the Messiah and offered forgiveness of sins. They were especially angered when Jesus and his disciples had dinner at a tax collector's house. Jesus began to teach a sermon describing God's kingdom, what God values, We join Pastor Will in Luke chapter 6, verse 27. Well, Jesus, we are here at the Sermon on the Plain. It often gets confused with the Sermon on the Mount, but I do not believe it's the same. Jesus teaches the Sermon on the Mount on a mount, and this one is very clearly in the lowlands. And as he's teaching a very similar sermon to that, he has just pronounced blessings on those who are poor, hungry, those who are weeping and those who are persecuted. At the same time, he's pronounced woe upon the rich and the content and the happy and the popular. So if you're part of the crowd that's poor, needy, sad, ignored, or disparaged, these types of speeches could fire you up. Yeah, Jesus, it's not fair. You get them. The Jews were used to these kind of speeches. Let's get rid of the Romans. Let's get rid of the religious elite. Let's get rid of everyone who hasn't suffered like we have. But is that how God wants us to react when we've experienced mistreatment or hardship? Not at all. So what Jesus says next in his sermon is something that all marginalized people hadn't heard before. Something we all need to hear and something we all need to live out. So chapter 6 of Luke, we begin in verse 27. Jesus says, But I say unto you which hear, love your enemies, do good to them which hate you, bless them that curse you. And pray for them which despitefully use you. And unto him that smites you on the one cheek, offer also the other. And him that takes away your cloak, forbid not to take your coat also. Give to every man that asks of you. And of him that takes away your goods, ask them not again. And as you would men should do to you, do you also to them likewise. 
Here we see that Jesus makes a contrast to these woes that he's pronounced upon the rich and the the happy and those who are laughing, everything's going great, and those who are popular. He says, but I say unto you which here. The word but there is the strongest form of contrast in the the ancient language here. Jesus wasn't angry at the proud or the self-satisfied or the self-deceived. We talked about what he was referring to when he said the rich and those who are laughing. We talked about that last week. He wasn't angry at those people. His heart broke for those people. That's what that word woe means. He was sad for them. And he he tells these people who are listening to him, most of them in the marginalized group, he says, your anger has been stoked by so-called prophets and rabbis and revolutionaries before. But today, I'm telling you something different. And so he says, if you're really listening to me, I say unto you, which hear, it means those who are paying attention, those who want to live out what I'm teaching. He says, those of you who are really listening, he goes, other voices out there are going to tell you how to react to mistreatment. They're going to tell you how to react to hardship. But this is my disciples' life. This is what my kingdom looks like. And that's something we need to understand. The disciples' reaction should be different when we see those, everything's fine for them, or when we're going through hardship, or when we've been mistreated, our reaction should be different because the love that God has is different. What does that type of love look like? Well, first off, it starts with a genuine care for every human being. He says, number one, love your enemies. The word here, love, it's in the imperative. Every verb here is in the imperative. They're all commands. None of them are optional. Every single one of Jesus' statements in these verses are commands. So he says, you must love your enemies. The word here, love, is that word agape. It's the word that the New Testament coined. It was used prior to that, but not much at all. It's God's kind of love. It means that no matter what that person does to us, we will never allow ourselves to desire anything but their highest good. And we choose to go out of our way to be good and kind to that person, no matter what. It's unconditional love, or as someone coined it, unconditional devotion. Now, the group here that he he says this to, that we're to do this to, is not the group he would normally want to do that toward. He says, love your enemies. Now, our enemy is someone who opposes us, someone who is hostile towards us. And everything else Jesus is going to tell us to do, everything else we're going to cover this morning, it starts with this heart condition. Because if I don't genuinely care for my enemies, well, then I won't do good to them. I won't pray for them. I'll hold back. I'll curse them or I'll retaliate. That kind of love doesn't originate with me. Maybe you're better than I am, but it certainly doesn't originate with me. And that's why it's listed as the first fruit of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, this kind of love. It means you can't grunt it up. You can't fake it till you make it. I know a lot of people do that and say, well, I don't have to like you, but I have to love you, so I'm going to do what I got to do. That's not the biblical definition of love your enemies, okay? Loving your enemy here, it, it comes from God. It comes into my heart. When I'm in the word of God daily, when I'm falling on my face before God daily, when I'm confessing my need to be changed, not their need to be changed, it's easy to confess someone else's problems to God, but to confess my need to be changed daily. And if you're struggling with loving someone right now, it's very likely because you're not doing those things. You're not in the word daily, or you're not on your face before God daily. You're not confessing your need to be changed daily. 
See, now when God pours his love into my heart and I choose to obediently live it out, this is what it be, you know, the rest of these things is what it looks like. But it starts with this commitment to say, Lord, I don't have this kind of love in me, but I, I know I need to love like this and I want to love like this. I want you to change me. And so, Lord, will you show me what that looks like? I'll do whatever you tell me to do. I'll be obedient to you in this way. Well, the first thing it looks like is it says, do good to them which hate you. The word to do good, it means to do what is excellent, to do what is right, to have good moral character. You know, if someone is rude to you, and that's what it means, those that hate you, someone who is, you know, unkind to you or is avoiding you, if someone is rude to you or uh, avoiding you because they can't stand you, you're not to return the favor. You're to treat them rightly. That means including them when it's right to do so. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean you need to invite them to your kid's birthday party. But the idea is, is if you invite everybody else to work to the kid's birthday party, but you exclude them, that's not loving them. If, if you have a special get-together at work and you're like, yeah, but I'm not inviting that, whatever name their name might be, that individual, because they don't like me. Well, that's not loving them. That's not doing good to them. It means always obeying God's command in how we're to treat others toward them. In other words, the way that someone treats me should never affect my morals toward them. Ever. Ever. You say, okay, well, I get that. Sounds right. Well, hold on, because as we go further, it gets harder. Next he says, bless them that curse you. So this kind of love, it not only does it treat everyone well, but it, it wants and speaks the best to everyone. Bless them that curse you. The word bless there means to ask God to bestow favor, whether it's upon you or someone else. But the implication here, of course, we know it's for someone else. And the implication when it's for someone else is that you actually do it verbally. So it's not just that you pray God blesses them. We're going to get to that in a minute. But it's that you tell them that you want God to bless them. Bless them that curse you. Who's cursing you? It means when someone wishes harm upon you. It's, it's like if someone says to you, I hope you get fired. Love genuinely replies, well, I want the very best for you, and I hope God gives you favor. I hope you get a promotion. Now, that sounds silly when we say it, because most of confrontations we have don't go like that. Someone, normally the confrontation we have, someone makes a jab at us, it hurts. But when we love someone, we don't react emotionally. When we love someone, we don't react emotionally when they do something that hurts us. You say, well, how can I do that? I mean, it's just normal. I'm a human being. I react emotionally. Okay. What also is a fruit of the Spirit? Self-control, right? If we're going to walk in the Spirit and we won't fulfill the desires of our flesh, that's a promise if we walk in the Spirit, then self-control is going to be a part of our lives. So we won't react emotionally. We're able to take that hurt to the Lord, leave it at His feet, and let Him replace it with blessing for that person. Now, if you react toward others emotionally when you feel you're unjustly treated, you don't actually have an enemy problem. You have a love problem. And until you obey Jesus' command to love everyone, it's going to be difficult to obey this command, to bless those who curse you. I had a pastor who he said, you know, it's, he would teach and, you know, and he would say, you know, that people aren't saying bless God, they're going, oh me. <laughs> and maybe you're thinking that right now. Listen, I didn't, I didn't make these things up. You know, I looked at this passage and, and you think to yourself, the Lord, there's just very little of this kind of love in the church today. Very little. 
particularly in the American church. And that's why it's so hard for us to hear it. It's not hard for us to hear it because it's wrong or I'm blowing it out of proportion. It's hard for us to hear it because we don't do it. It challenges us at the very core of how we normally do life. What's the normal reaction? If somebody's mean to you, what do you do? You get them back, right? You don't don't let somebody walk all over you. You, You don't let somebody ever get away with that. If you let them get away with that, they'll just keep doing it over and over and over and over again. We take up offense easily. We retaliate quickly. But Jesus says, bless those who curse you. Bless those who verbalize harm to you. You verbalize blessing back to them. Next, Jesus says, this kind of love, not only does it treat everyone well, not only does it want and speak the best for everyone, but it prays for everyone. He says, pray for them which despitefully use you. That phrase, despitefully use, it means to mistreat with the implication of threats or even abuse. Now, Abuse is a touchy topic when we bring it up because some in the church have told people who are in an abusive situation, they tell them to stay in that abusive situation. Love stays in an abusive situation. Listen, if you are in a physically abusive situation today, get out now, okay? Jesus is not telling anyone to be a punching bag here. We'll get to the whole turn the other cheek thing in a moment, but he's not telling anyone to be a punching bag here. You know, if if you are in physical danger, leave Get to a safe place, report them to the authorities, and, and make sure you keep, take care of you and, and whoever else is in danger. Now, I say that because what I'm about to say is something that will be a little bit controversial. Because the word abusive, I believe, is sometimes used when it shouldn't be. I'm talking about physical abuse when I say get out. But frequently, I have someone who come to me and say, I'm in, a, I'm in an abusive relationship. And of course, what do I say? Well, What's going on? You need to get to safety. And whatever, you know, oh, no, 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 it's not that. He or she is verbally abusive. Verbal abuse is awful. If you engage in it, if you talk to your spouse or to a loved one in ways that, you know, if Jesus was there, you'd be ashamed, then shame on you. You should never verbally abuse a person. The Bible gives us clear instructions on what is okay and okay not to say. It is never an acceptable form of communication to curse at your spouse or your children. It's never an acceptable form of communication to insult your spouse or your children. Those are not okay things to do. Verbal abuse is wrong and it's horrible. However, verbal abuse is not a biblical reason to leave your spouse. It is a biblical reason to seek help. It's a biblical reason to get counseling. It's a biblical reason to bring in other people in the church so that you can find repentance. Verbal abuse against you also, biblically, is not a reason to retaliate against someone else with your own verbal onslaught. If someone is mistreating you, Jesus says, pray for them. And you think, wow, that's just crazy. Well, yeah, Jesus did it himself. What did Jesus do when they were pounding the spikes into his wrists and into his feet? He did exactly what he's telling us to do here. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't realize what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, it tells us in light of what Jesus did in that moment, in that moment, that wasn't just verbal abuse, that was physical abuse in that moment. 
It says that we have him as our example. First Peter chapter 2, verse 21 says, For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten back, but he committed himself to him that judges righteously. That's what we're to do in that situation. When someone is verbally abusive to you, when they are mistreating you, when they are threatening you, you pray for them. You say, Father, they don't realize what they're doing. Will you please forgive them? Will you please be merciful to them? Will you work on their heart? And you commit yourself to him who judges righteously, the one who will take care of everything, who will right every wrong in due time. Jesus said, love your enemy. Do good to those who hate you. Bless them that curse you and pray for them which despitefully use you. He did not say, date or marry your enemy. He did not say, date those who curse you. He did not say, marry those who despitefully use you. I bring this up because if you're in a dating relationship or you're engaged to someone right now who mistreats you, get out. Things don't magically go away when you get married. I hear that all the time. Well, I thought things would get better once we got married. Why? Why would you think they would all of a sudden change? Things tend to get worse when you get married because now they think, well, now I'm good. I got them. I was on my best behavior. Now I can act however I want. You could still fulfill Jesus' command to pray for that person after you break up with them. You could still bless them when you see them. But if you continue in a relationship like that when you can avoid it before you commit yourself by saying, I do, you're asking for a world of heartache if you don't get out. Too often people in a dating situation think they need to give their life away for their partner like Jesus did for us. I hear it all the time. Well, this is what Jesus said, you know, husbands are supposed to do for their wives. You're not their husband yet. You're not their wife yet. Those things don't apply until you say I do. So say I don't now. (laughs) And find someone who would treat you well. Find someone who genuinely loves you and wants to share life with you. Now, I said this gets harder, and the next part is definitely the most difficult for us to do. Verse 29. And unto him that smites you on the one cheek, offer also your other. I keep trying to find a Bible translation that does not have this verse in it. I have not been successful. He also qualifies. And him that takes away your cloak, forbid not to take your coat also. Now, let's define what this is here. If someone smites you on the cheek... Now, that's not a slap in the face. It means to hit someone in the jaw. It's an act of violence. It's not just a slap in the face. When someone takes your coat from you, that's theft. And it says, when someone takes your coat from you, don't hinder or prevent from them from taking your shirt. Now, what's going on here? Well, let me point out something. Jesus is not a pacifist. He's not anti-weapon. He's not even anti-self-defense. He allowed the disciples to carry swords. In Revelation 19.11, the Bible says that when he's riding on the horse, he's coming to make war. So Jesus is not a pacifist. But you do need to understand an important principle that Jesus laid out somewhere else. And he said this, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. If you're going to live by the sword, then you will die that way. You take your life, you need to hear this, you need to take your life into your own hands anytime you decide to defend yourself with force. 
You cannot expect God to magically protect you when you decide to respond with physical force to physical force, all right? Now, the right thing to do sometimes is to defend yourself or to defend those who are weaker. The Bible talks about that. But the idea that Jesus is conveying here is not a situation like that. He's talking about a one-on-one situation here. When someone does physical harm to you, when someone has robbed you, what Jesus is saying is in that situation, if you're attacked or you're robbed, he says, don't retaliate. J.C. Ryle explained it this way. He said, followers of Christ are to forgo all of their rights, even when it means submitting to wrong, rather than awaken angry passions or create quarrels. The idea here is retaliation. It's not self-defense. It's not anything else. It's retaliation. If I perpetuate wrong behavior by returning evil for evil, then I'm no better than the assailant or the thief in the scenario. That's what Jesus is saying. If someone steals a promotion out from underneath you by lying about you, then you should not try to sabotage their new position. You should become their biggest supporter. You should say, listen, you know what? They got the job, not me. Circumstances of how it happened stink, but that doesn't matter anymore. This is how it is, and I'm going to make it my goal to help them succeed because I want to show them a different kind of love. I want to show them God's love. Now, you might be sitting there right now and going, well, that's just wrong, Will. Where's the justice here? What about right and wrong? Do we just tolerate wrongdoing? Well, how about we go back to the cross and we ask the same question? What if the father stopped that injustice? Because I can't think of a greater injustice. I think I can't think of a greater wrong than the cross. What if the father stopped that? What if the father said, nope, this is just wrong, and on principle, I'm stopping it right now. Everyone will die for their own sins. He could have done that, and then we would all be in hell forever. So let me ask you a question. If your refusal to retaliate, if your prayers for someone who's abusing you, if your blessings upon someone who's cursing you, if your right conduct to an enemy or those who hate you causes someone to see the love of God to such a degree that they repent of their sins and find eternal life, isn't your suffering worth it? We look at Stephen and we can think to ourselves, what a wasted life. Here's a man who was anointed by God. He's leading people to Christ. He's doing miracles. I mean, this is a guy who could change the world for Jesus. But what if Stephen's calling was to change one man's life by losing his? What if that was Stephen's calling, was to change one man's life by losing his? Would you be willing to do that? Would you say that Stephen's life is wasted then? I'm glad Jesus thought that his suffering was worth it for me. I'm glad that Jesus said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for will, a ransom for many. Now, most of us aren't going to be robbed. Most of us aren't going to be physically assaulted. But people who mistreat us will have the audacity to ask favors. Verse 30, the next thing we see about this kind of love, not only is it, does it not retaliate against anyone, but it's generous to everyone. Jesus says, give to every man that asks of you and of him that takes away your goods, ask them not again. You know, it's interesting. I love that Jesus says, give to every man that asks you. That phrase, every man, is emphatic in the Greek. It means there are no exclusions, not even in these next two scenarios. What two scenarios? What it says, give to him that asks of you. The word asks there sounds nice, doesn't it? Well, if someone asks you something, you should give it to them, right? No, the word there means to demand. 
Give to him that demands of you. In other words, they're not politely asking you. And then the second situation is to him that takes from you. Be generous, even if someone is impolite or they've stolen from you. It's not your job to teach them politeness by refusing to help. I'm, and that's a kind of a, a weird, weird way our brains work. I'm going to teach you about you know, how to be polite by not helping you. Okay, I'm getting you back for your impoliteness, and so that's going to teach them to be polite? No. See, the Bible says there's one judge, and it's God. And he will use your kind generosity to impact a person's life far more than your sanctimonious refusal to help because you're enabling them if you do so. He says, give to him that demands of you or to him that takes from you your goods. Don't ask for them back. Don't demand them back. God, of course, is not asking us to give something we don't have, but I must never let my possessions possess me to the point that I won't help another person. I don't know about you, but I know I would want someone to be generous to me if I needed help. And Jesus wants us to do the same. We are called to love others as God has loved us. How did God love us? What is the proof that God even cares about us? It is found in the sending of His Son Jesus to take our place, to receive the punishment of sins on our behalf, to come down, take on flesh, live the life of a poor, hard-working man, die the death of a wretched sinner, being spit at and mocked, being beaten beyond recognition, and then suffer and die on a cross for us. This is how God has demonstrated his love and affection. He died for people that would reject him even to the bitter end. We can experience this love when we come to him on his terms, repent, and put our trust in him to save us from ourselves. We can love like God has loved us. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.